Welcome to The Crux, True Survival Stories. And I'm Julie Henningsen, your host, here today with Casey McIntosh. Hi, Casey. Hey, how's it going? Good. Today I'm going to talk about an incredible survival story that I've been telling and retelling for probably 20 years at this point. It has to do with a submersion incident, and it is a great story to illustrate two really important points about submersion, drowning victims, or we'll call them patients because they might survive. Um, <laughs> The story is of a little girl named Michelle Funk. This happened in 1986. And when she was uh, two and a half, so just a little toddler, she was having a picnic on her front lawn with her brother and baby sister. And her mom ran in the house to get the, a bottle for the baby sister. And while her mom was in the house just for a moment, she and her brother toddled across the street in front of their house to go throw rocks in a little stream um, across the street from their home. Their mom was just in the house for a few minutes, and while she was gone, or as soon as she came back out, Michelle's older brother met her mom at the front door and said, Michelle's fallen into the stream. So this little two-and-a-half-year-old fell into the stream. This was winter in Salt Lake City, so it was cold and the water was cold. So they ran across the street. Some neighbors came out and helped, but it was a middle of a weekday. So there weren't a lot of people around and verified that, in fact, Michelle had fallen into the stream and she floated down the stream into a culvert. The stream went right into a culvert. So Michelle's mom ran back in the house and called 911. They were yelling her name. They were trying to get down into kind of fast-moving stream water to see if she, they could reach her inside this culvert, but no luck. Nobody could see her, and the, the stream was pretty swollen because of the melted snow and fast-moving that time of year. So responders came, and they eventually blocked the stream upstream to slow the flow a little bit. And uh, the paramedics and rescue team were there in 10 minutes, so a pretty speedy response. But the current was so strong, they still couldn't get her. They set up a rope system. They found nothing. And finally, after 45 minutes, this little girl had been in the culvert. A rescuer wearing a wetsuit saw her arm floating, jammed under a rock at the outlet of the culvert of the pipe. So they, they dragged her out of the water at that point in time. And she had been underwater for 66 minutes. So not breathing, underwater for 66 minutes. So she was dead. Her pupils were fixed. She was blue. She was not breathing. Her body core temperature was lower than 70 degrees. So really consistent with severe hypothermia. Uh, but rule number one, with submersion, we always give kids the benefit of the doubt. Kids are survivors. They have some really great survival reflexes, mammalian diving reflex that we're all born with that's really strong in kids and can help them make miraculous uh, recoveries in situations like this, which foreshadowing is what's about to happen here. 
So I think the world has changed a lot because I wouldn't even leave my four-year-old outside to go run inside to get something. But maybe, right. maybe I'm a helicopter parent. I just cannot even imagine. But I guess I think about stories like this when I'm doing things. And even though it's annoying to maybe have to bring my kid, I'll just do it anyway. Yeah, well, you'll think about it every time after you hear a story like this, for sure. Right. But it also makes me think about, I only have two kids. You have three, I know. And I'm thinking about this mom with a two and a half year old, a newborn, another toddler. That's a lot. So I, you know what? These things happen. Oh, and for I sure. Can, I can imagine, imagine how it would, even with the best of intention. Oh yeah, absolutely. One of my friends, before yeah. you go on, I was just going to tell you, she, um, it was this crazy winter storm and she was in her bathroom, yeah. like getting ready for the day. And her kid, who was about the same age, you know, two and a half, three, uh, was watching TV and she came back into the room and he was gone and she couldn't find him for you know, like three to five minutes and she was panicking. And it turned out that he went outside in the middle of a blinding snowstorm and she eventually found him with only a diaper on in the doghouse. And so it could have been oh easily, my gosh. A, yeah, easily a story like this, you know, it's like your kid's in the house oh, safe yeah, and fine. Yeah. And then the next minute. Yeah. He yeah, was fine. It happens so fast. Right. Sorry, go on. Oh, no, no problem. So the responders loaded her into the ambulance and took her to the, the Salt Lake City Children's Medical Center, which I think the location where this happened probably contributed to the success of this story because, I mean, what better place to be close to than the Salt Lake City Primary Children's Medical Center? And she was there within a half an hour of being pulled out of the water. So by now she's been, you know, what is it, like 90 minutes since she was submerged. Uh, so she was treated by a Dr. Robert Bolt, who noted that she appeared clinically dead, but he had access to this pretty new technology that he wanted to try. He called Michelle's parents and explained, despite the time she'd been underwater, um, he thought it might be worth a try to revive her using a technique that had um, been done in Switzerland. It was developed by a Dr. Althaus there, which this is where it gets interesting. It's a machine that they take the drowning victim who drown in cold water. A cold water drowning is a prerequisite for this. And they put an IV in one arm and remove the cold blood out of the body, rewarm it in this rewarming, circulating, re blood rewarming machine, and then put an IV in the other arm and readminister the warmed blood. So it's a like a machine to warm blood mechanically and then inject it back into the patient um, to quickly warm their blood. All right, I was going to ask you if that's similar to like cardiopulmonary bypass. Do you know? I don't know. I bet it is because it's, I mean, the, the mechanics of it is the same just for a different reason. Mm -hmm. And I think the rewarming part of it probably has to be a little bit more intense because, you know, they're looking at blood that's colder than 70 degrees. So that's quite a bit of rewarming. But yeah, I think it probably works very similarly. Uh, so they knew when they made the decision that there was a risk that if it worked, that Michelle might come back as a vegetable. I'm reading an article that that she wrote herself. Those were the words that she used. They knew that there was a risk I'd come back as a vegetable, but my parents wanted to try. 
So the blood went around the machine, was re-oxygenated, re-injected. Her body quickly warmed up. And when her body core temperature reached 92 degrees, her heart rate spontaneously returned. It showed back up on a heart rate monitor. And then her eyes opened. That was three hours after she had fallen into the stream. So she was clinically dead for three hours, submerged with her airway underwater for 66 minutes of that three hours. The doctors were still skeptical that this technology had only been used like 20 times ever and never on a baby. She was the first baby to have this. They didn't know if she would regain brain function. But she talked about how she's a Mormon. Their bishop came to the hospital. A lot of people were praying for her. She was in a coma at that point for five days. And this is where it just gets tugs on your heartstrings. She came out of the coma when her dad kissed her goodbye. And as he reached for the door, she opened her eyes and blew him a kiss. And eight weeks later, she left the hospital. She left the hospital with a relatively intact brain. Um, she couldn't jump or play, but mentally and emotionally, she made a full recovery. Uh, she has some issues with her memory. This was in 1980. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Six. So I think at this point, Michelle is probably like 38 years old. And she's a dental assistant. Her dad was a dentist. So she's alive and well and lived to write an article about her survival story. And she aspired to work in medicine because of this incident. She wanted to work in the medical field and be able to help people the way people helped her. So just a miraculous survival story. So the two things I always think about with submersion, one is the kid thing. Give kids the benefit of the doubt because they can, more than adults, come back from submersion incidents in miraculous ways. Uh, especially if the water is cold, if they drown in cold water. And by cold, I mean less than 70 degrees Fahrenheit. And the physiologic explanation for that is they have a greater body surface area relative to their blood volume. So they cool a lot quicker. Mm. That, that mammalian diving reflex in combination with quick cooling just allows them to lower, dramatically lower their metabolic needs so that their brain can stay alive on really tiny amounts of oxygenated blood. And then the other rule that we like to keep in mind with submersion and hypothermia patients, nobody's dead until they're warm and dead because it can be really difficult to differentiate a cold but still hanging on to life person and a dead person. So we rewarm people and if they're still dead, they're dead, but nobody's dead till they're warm and dead. Words to live by right there, Julie. <laughs> Words to live by. <laughs> Lives saved by following that rule. Yeah. 
That's a really great story. So there's four factors that improve survivability of immersion incidents, or we'll call it submersion. One we've already talked about is the age. The younger the person, the higher the chances of survival. Two is the temperature. The colder the water, the higher the chances of survival because of that metabolic kind of shut down that we all can experience in cold water. Three, the duration of submersion, obviously, the longer you're underwater. And then four is kind of interesting, the clarity of the water, because some drowning victims will survive the drowning incident. But if the water is loaded with material, you know, floaters that gets in their lungs, they can develop a pneumonia after the fact that can be fatal from exposure of their lung tissue to cloudy water and the contents that are making it cloudy. If you're going to drown, be young, do it in clear water and do it in cold water. So this is like really scratching the brain, like going way back into my PA school brain. But what is the dry drowning that happens where you basically aspirate water and it washes out your, um, what's the word? The stuff keeps your alveoli open. Perfectum. Is it sur- Here's a little bit, a little tidbit about that that's interesting is when somebody is drowning, when humans drowned, about 20% of drowning victims experience a laryngospasm, which is just a muscular spasm of the vocal cords that blocks water from entering the lungs. But it also blocks air from entering the lungs. We would call that a dry drowning. So mm. you know, after the fact, their lungs are not full of water. They didn't have exposure of the lung tissue to water, but they stopped breathing. And then 80% would be a wet drowning where, yes, actual water is flooding the lung tissue and the alveoli and probably causing that condition you're talking about where it washes away the surfactant. What's crazy to think of is it seems like you would stop breathing, you would pass out, the laryngospasm would stop, and then you would breathe again. But I guess at that point, maybe you're breathing in water. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. It's a good question because I think part of even knowing that this happens is doing an autopsy on drowning victim and seeing that they don't actually have water in there. So it's almost like the laryngospasm stays spasmed even after death. I'm not sure about that. That's really interesting and terrifying all at the same time. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I don't know if I'd rather have a laryngospasm or a lung full of water. Neither sound good. (laughs) I think the laryngospasm sounds horribly uncomfortable, honestly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. Well, those are things to think about for the rest of your day as you go through your day. You guys can send us a message and let us know what you would prefer (laughs) on our Instagram, if you wish. Anything else that you have to say about submersion, immersion, or drowning, Julie? Keep your head above water. That's my closeout statement. Just keep your head above water. (laughs) Yeah. I have some statistics. Hit me with some statistics. Okay. So here's some interesting statistics about drowning. 35% of drowning victims are people who can swim. So there might be a false sense of security if you think, oh, I'm a good swimmer. I'm going to be immune to that. That's not how it works. 90% of drowning deaths occur less than 10 yards from safety. So they can be really close to help. Um, This is interesting. Five-gallon buckets 
caused 24% of drowning incidents in children less than a year old. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. So parents of babies get rid of the five-gallon buckets. So do you think that people are doing cleaning with five-gallon buckets and they leave the water standing? Yeah, or maybe it's like a rain catchment. I'm trying to think what I would use a five-gallon bucket for around the house, and it would probably be some kind of a cleaning or leak-catching operation. (laughs) I like that you call it an operation because... With a five-gallon bucket, is so low-tech. Low-low-tech. I love that. Um, and then my last stat, no surprise, 50% of teen and adult drownings are usually thought to be alcohol-related. 50%? 50%, yeah. That's high. It's high, yeah. Boating and drinking or swimming and drinking or... Any water-related activities, slip and sliding and drinking, I don't know. Just make sure you don't slip and slide while drinking. Well, I love the statistics, and that's really, really crazy. Just talking about the story makes me want to make sure my kids have swimming lessons every summer, even though they Yes. Like, sorry, guys. Suck it up. Yeah. We already know how to swim. That's what I always get. Actually, you know what? I need to do swimming lessons because I haven't taken them. Or you're a swimmer. Right? Yeah, I'm a swimmer. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So someday I really need you to tell us the story about how you won that race. Oh, yes. I am not only am I a swimmer, I am an award-winning open water swimmer. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love this story. Are to you going to tell it now? Okay. No. Okay. We, we need a cliffhanger. Right. Okay. Cliffhanger. We'll start the next episode, the beginning of the next episode, with Julie telling you about her open water swimming achievements in, in flathead lake yes home home turf i just can't wait to hear that story again <laughs> all right you guys have a wonderful week keep your heads above water and uh, yeah if you want to give us a review or share this podcast with one of your friends or one of your not friends have a great week and we'll talk to you next time thanks 